Welcome to the 47th reading of John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, translated by Henry Beveridge. We are continuing this reading in Book 4, Chapter 13, Section 1. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts, are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, So also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, which we hope you will find to be a great blessing and which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. John 14:6. Chapter 13. A Vows. The Miserable Entanglements Caused by Vowing Rashly. There are 21 sections. Section 1. It is indeed deplorable that the church whose freedom was purchased by the inestimable price of Christ's blood, should have been thus oppressed by cruel tyranny, and almost buried under a huge mass of traditions. But at the same time, the private infatuation of each individual shows that not without just cause has so much power been given from above to Satan and his ministers. It was not enough to neglect the command of Christ and bear any burdens which false teachers might please to impose, but each individual behoved to have his own peculiar burdens and thus sink deeper by digging his own cavern. This has been the result when men set about devising vows by which a stronger and closer obligation might be added to common ties. Having already shown that the worship of God was vitiated by the audacity of those who, under the name of pastors, domineered in the church when they ensnared miserable souls by their iniquitous laws, it will not be out of place here to advert to a kindred evil to make it appear that the world, in accordance with this depraved disposition, has always thrown every possible obstacle in the way of the helps by which it ought to have been brought to God. Moreover, that the very grievous mischief introduced by such vows may be more apparent, let the reader attend to the principles formerly laid down. First, we showed in Book 2, Chapter 8, Section 5, that everything requisite for the ordering of a pious and holy life is comprehended in the law. Secondly, we showed that the Lord, the better to dissuade us from devising new works, included the whole of righteousness and simple obedience to his will. If these positions are true, it is easy to see that all fictitious worship, which we ourselves devise for the purpose of serving God, is not in the least degree acceptable to him, how pleasing soever it may be to us. And unquestionably, in many passages, the Lord not only openly rejects, but grievously abhors such worship. Hence arises a doubt with regard to vows which are made without any express authority from the word of God. In what light are they to be viewed? Can they be duly made by Christian men, and to what extent are they binding? What is called a promise among men is a vow when made to God. Now we promise to men either things which we think will be acceptable to them, or things which we in duty owe them. Much more careful, therefore, ought we to be in vows which are directed to God, with whom we ought to act with the greatest seriousness. Here superstition has in all ages strangely prevailed. Men at once, without judgment and without choice, vowing to God whatever came into their minds, or even rose to their lips. 
Hence the foolish vows, nay, monstrous absurdities, by which the heathen insolently sported with their gods. Would that Christians had not imitated them in this their audacity. Nothing, indeed, could be less becoming, but it is obvious that for some ages nothing has been more usual than this misconduct, the whole body of the people everywhere despising the law of God, and burning with an insane zeal of vowing according to any dreaming notion which they had formed. I have no wish to exaggerate invidiously or particularize the many grievous sins which have here been committed, but it seemed right to advert to it in passing that it may the better appear that when we treat of vows we are not by any means discussing a superfluous question. Section 2. If we would avoid error in deciding what vows are legitimate and what preposterous, three things must be attended to, viz. who he is to whom the vow is made, who we are that make it, and lastly, with what intention we make it. In regard to the first, we should consider that we have to do with God, whom our obedience so delights that he abominates all will-worship, how specious and splendid soever it be in the eyes of men. Colossians 2, verse 23. If all will-worship, which we devise without authority, is abomination to God, it follows that no worship can be acceptable to him, save that which is approved by his word. Therefore, we must not arrogate such license to ourselves as to presume to vow anything to God without evidence of the affirmation in which he holds it. For the doctrine of Paul, that whatsoever is not of faith is sin, Romans 14, verse 23, while it extends to all actions of every kind, certainly applies with peculiar force in the case where the thought is immediately turned towards God. Nay, if in the minutest matters Paul was then speaking of the distinction of meats, we err our fall, where the sure light of faith shines not before us, how much more modesty ought we to use when we attempt a matter of the greatest weight? For in nothing ought we to be more serious than in the duties of religion. And vows, then, our first precaution must be never to proceed to make any vow without having previously determined in our conscience to attempt nothing rashly. And we shall be safe from the danger of rashness when we have God going before and, as it were, dictating from his word what is good and what is useless. Section 3. And the second point, which we have mentioned as requiring consideration, is implied that we measure our strength, that we attend to our vocation so as not to neglect the blessing of liberty which God has conferred upon us. For he who vows what is not within his means, or is at variance with his calling, is rash, while he who contemns the beneficence of God in making him Lord of all things, is ungrateful. When I speak thus, I mean not anything is so placed in our hand that, leaning on our own strength, we may promise it to God. For in the council of Orissica it was most truly decreed that nothing is duly vowed to God save what we have received from his hand, since all things which are offered to him are merely his gifts. But saying that some things are given to us by the goodness of God and others withheld by his justice, every man should have respect to the measure of grace bestowed on him as Paul enjoins. Romans 12 verse 3 and 1 Corinthians 12 verse 11. All then I mean here is, that your vow should be adapted to the measure which God, by his gifts, prescribes to you, lest, by attempting more than he permits, you arrogate too much to yourself and fall headlong. For example, when the assassins of whom mention is made in the Acts vowed, quote, that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul, unquote, Acts 23, verse 12, though it had not been an impious conspiracy, it would still have been intolerably presumptuous as subjecting the life and death of a man to their own power. Thus Jephthah suffered for his folly, when with precipitate fervor he made a rash vow. Judges 11, verse 30. 
of this class, the first place of insane audacity, belongs to celibacy. Priests, monks, and nuns, forgetful of their infirmity, are confident of their fitness for celibacy. But by what oracle have they been instructed that the chastity which they vow to the end of life they will be able through life to maintain? They hear the voice of God concerning the universal condition of mankind. Quote, it is not good that man should be alone. Unquote. Genesis 2, verse 18. They understand, and I wish they did not feel, that the sin remaining in us is armed with the sharpest stings. How can they presume to shake off the common feelings of their nature for a whole lifetime, saying the gift of continence is often granted for a certain time as occasion requires? In such perverse conduct, they must not expect God to be their helper. Let them rather remember the words, quote, Ye shall not tempt the Lord your God, unquote, Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. But it is to tempt the Lord to strive against the nature implanted by him and to spurn his present gifts, as if they did not appertain to us. This they not only do, but marriage, which God did not think it unbecoming his majesty to institute, which he pronounced honorable in all, which Christ our Lord sanctified by his presence, and which he deigned to honor with his first miracle, they presume to stigmatize as pollution, so extravagant are the terms in which they eulogize every kind of celibacy. As if in their own life they did not furnish a clear proof that celibacy is one thing and chastity another. This life, however, they most impudently style angelical, thereby offering no slight insult to the angels of God, to whom they compare whoremongers and adulterers and something much worse and fouler still. And indeed, there is here very little occasion for argument, since they are abundantly reputed by fact. For we plainly see the fearful punishments with which the Lord avenges this arrogance and contempt of his gifts from overweening confidence. More hidden crimes I spare through shame. What is known of them is too much. Beyond all controversy, we ought not to vow anything which will hinder us in fulfilling our vocation, as if the father of a family were to vow to leave his wife and children and undertake other burdens, or one who is fit for a public office should, when elected to it, vow to live private. But the meaning of what we have said as to not despising our liberty may occasion some difficulty if not explained. Wherefore, understand it briefly thus. Since God has given us dominion over all things, and so subjected them to us, that we may use them for our convenience, we cannot hope that our service will be acceptable to God if we bring ourselves into bondage to external things which ought to be subservient to us. I say this because some aspire to the praise of humility, for entangling themselves in a variety of observances from which God, for good reason, wished us to be entirely free. Hence, if we would escape this danger, let us always remember that we are by no means to withdraw from the economy which God has appointed in the Christian Church. Section 4. I come now to my third position. These, that if you would approve your vow to God, the mind in which you undertake it is of great moment. For seeing that God looks not to the outward appearance, but to the heart, the consequence is that according to the purpose which the mind has in view, the same thing may at one time please and be acceptable to him, and at another be most displeasing. If you vow abstinence from wine as if there were any holiness in so doing, you are superstitious. But if you have some end in view which is not perverse, no one can disapprove. Now, as far as I can see, there are four ends to which our vows may be properly directed. Two of these, for the sake of order, I refer to the past, and two to the future. To the past belong vows by which we either testify our gratitude toward God for favors received, or, in order to deprecate his wrath, inflict punishment on ourselves for faults committed. The former, let us, if you please, call acts of thanksgiving, the latter, acts of repentance. 
of the former class, we have an example in the ties which Jacob vowed. Genesis 28, verse 20, if the Lord would conduct him safely home from exile, and also in the ancient peace offerings which pious kings and commanders went about to engage in a just war, vowed that they would give if they were victorious, or at least if the Lord would deliver them when pressed by some greater difficulty. Thus are to be understood all the passages in the Psalms which speak of vows. Psalm 22, verse 26, and 56, verse 13, and 116, verses 14 and 18. Similar vows may also be used by us in the present day whenever the Lord has rescued us from some disaster or dangerous disease or other peril. For it is not abhorrent from the office of a pious man thus to consecrate a votive offering to God as a formal symbol of acknowledgment that he may not seem ungrateful for his kindness. The nature of the second class will be sufficient to illustrate merely by one familiar example. Should anyone from gluttonous indulgence have fallen into some iniquity, there is nothing to prevent him, with the view of chastising his intemperance, from renouncing all luxuries for a certain time, and in so doing, from employing a vow for the purpose of binding himself more firmly. And yet I do not lay down this as an invariable law to all who have similarly offended. I merely show what may be lawfully done by those who think that such a vow will be useful to them. Thus, while I hold it lawful, so to vow, I at the same time leave it free. Section 5. The vows which have reference to the future tend partly, as we have said, to render us more cautious, and partly to act as a kind of stimulus to the discharge of duty. A man sees that he is so prone to a certain vice, that in a thing which is otherwise not bad, he cannot restrain himself from forthwith falling into evil. He will not act absurdly in cutting off the use of that thing for some time by a vow. If, for instance, one should perceive that this or that bodily ornament brings him into peril, and yet allured by cupidity he eagerly longs for it, what can he do better than by throwing a curb upon himself, that is, imposing the necessity of abstinence, free himself from all doubt? In like manner, should one be oblivious or sluggish in the necessary duties of piety, why should he not, by forming a vow, both awaken his memory and shake off his sloth? And both, I confess, there is a kind of tutelage, but inasmuch as they are helps to infirmity, they are used not without advantage by the ignorant and imperfect. Hence we hold that vows which have respect to one of these ends, especially in external things, are lawful, provided they are supported by the approbation of God, are suitable to our calling, and are limited to the measure of grace bestowed upon us. Section 6. It is not now difficult to infer what view on the whole ought to be taken of vows. There is one vow common to all believers, which taken in baptism we confirm, and, as it were, sanctioned by our catechism and partaking of the Lord's Supper. For the sacraments are a kind of mutual contracts by which the Lord conveys his mercy to us, and by it eternal life, while we in our turn promise him obedience. The formula, or at least substance, of the vow is that renouncing Satan we bind ourselves to the service of God to obey his holy commands and no longer follow the depraved desires of our flesh. It cannot be doubted that this vow, which is sanctioned by Scripture, nay, is exacted from all the children of God, is holy and salutary. There is nothing against this in the fact that no man in this life yields that perfect obedience to the law which God requires of us. This stipulation being included in the covenant of grace comprehending forgiveness of sins and the spirit of holiness, the promise which we there make is combined both with entreaty for pardon and petition for assistance. It is necessary in judging of particular vows to keep the three former rules in remembrance. From them, anyone will easily estimate the character of each single vow. 
Do not suppose, however, that I so commend the vows which I maintain to be holy, that I would have them made every day. For though I dare not give any precept as to time or number, yet if any one will take my advice, he will not undertake any but what are sober and temporary. If you are ever and anon launching out into numerous vows, the whole solemnity will be lost by the frequency, and you will readily fall into superstition. If you bind yourself by a perpetual vow, you will have great trouble and annoyance in getting free, or, worn out by length of time, you will at length make bold to break it. Section 7. It is now easy to see under how much superstition the world has labored in this respect for several ages. One vowed that he would be abstemious, as if abstinence from wine were in itself an acceptable service to God. Another bound himself to fast, another to abstain from flesh on certain days which he had vainly imagined to be more holy than other days. Things much more boyish were vowed, though not by boys. For it was accounted great wisdom to undertake votive pilgrimages to holy places, and sometimes to perform the journey on foot, or with the body half-naked, that the greater merit might be acquired by the greater fatigue. These and similar things, for which the world has long bustled with incredible zeal, if tried by the rules which we formerly laid down, will be discovered to be not only empty and nugatory, but full of manifest impiety. Be the judgment of the flesh what it may, there is nothing which God more abhors than fictitious worship. To these are added pernicious and damnable notions. Hypocrites, after performing such frivolities, thinking that they have acquired no ordinary righteousness, placing the substance of piety in external observances and despising all others who appear less careful in regard to them. Section 8. It is of no use to enumerate all the separate forms. It is monastic vows are held in great veneration. Because they seem to be approved by the public judgment of the Church, I will say a few words concerning them. And first, lest anyone defend the monachism of the present day on the ground of the long prescription, it is to be observed that the ancient mode of living in monasteries was very different. The persons who retired to them were those who wished to train themselves to the greatest austerity and patience. The discipline practiced by the monks then resembled that which the Lacedaemonians are said to have used under the laws of Lycurgus, and it was even much more rigorous. They slept on the ground, their drink was water, their food bread, herbs, and roots their chief luxuries, oil, and pulse. For more delicate food and care of the body they abstained. These things might seem hyperbolical, were they not vouched by experienced eyewitnesses, as Gregory Nanzianzen, Basel, and Chrysostom. By such rudimentary training, they prepared themselves for greater offices. For of the fact that monastic colleges were then a kind of seminaries of the ecclesiastical order, both those whom we lately named are very competent witnesses, they were all brought up in the monasteries and thence called the Episcopal Office, as well as several other great and excellent men of their age. Augustine also shows that in his time the monasteries were wont to furnish the church with clergy. For he thus addresses the monks of the island of Capri, quote, We exhort you, brethren, in the Lord, to keep your purpose and persevere to the end. And if at any time our mother church requires your labor, you will neither undertake it with eager elation, nor reject it from the blandishment of sloth, but with meek hearts obey God. You will not prefer your own ease to the necessities of the church. Had no good men been willing to minister to her when in travail, it would have been impossible for you to be born. Unquote. He is speaking of the ministry by which believers are spiritually born again. In like manner, he says to Aurelius, quote, It is both an occasion of lapse to them, 
and a most unbecoming injury to the clerical order if the deserters of monasteries are elected to the clerical warfare, since from those who remain in the monastery our custom is to appoint to the clerical office only the better and more approved. Unless perhaps, as the vulgar say, a bad chorister is a good symphonist, so in like manner it will be jestingly said of us, a bad monk is a good clergyman. There will be too much cause for grief if we stir up monks to such ruinous pride and deem the clergy deserving of so grave an affront, saying that sometimes a good monk scarcely makes a good clerk. He may have sufficient continence, but be deficient in necessary learning." Unquote. From these passages it appears that pious men were wont to prepare for the government of the church by monastic discipline, that thus they might be more apt and better trained to undertake the important office. Not that all attain to this object or even aimed at it, since the great majority of monks were illiterate men. Those who were fit were selected. Section 9. Augustine, in two passages in particular, gives a portraiture of a form of ancient monasticism. The one is in his book, De Moribus Ecclesiae Catholicae, On the Manners of the Catholic Church, where he maintains the holiness of that profession against the calumnies of the Manichees. The other, in a treatise, entitled, De Opalare Monacorum, on the work of monks, where he inveighs against certain degenerate monks who had begun to corrupt that institution. I will here give a summary of what he there delivers, and as far as I can, in his own words. Quote, Despising the allurements of this world, and congregated in common for a most chaste and most holy life, they pass their lives together, spending their time in prayer, reading, and discourse, not swollen with pride, not turbulent through petulance, not livid with envy. No one possesses anything of his own. No one is burdensome to any man. They labor with their hands and things by which the body may be fed, and the mind not withdrawn from God. The fruit of their labor they hand over to those whom they call deans. Those deans, disposing of the whole with great care, render an account to one whom they call father. These fathers, who are not only of the purest morals, but most distinguished for divine learning and noble in all things, without any pride consult those whom they call their sons, though the former have full authority to command and the latter a great inclination to obey. At the close of the day, they assemble each from his cell, and without having broken their fast, to hear their father, and to the number of three thousand at least, he is speaking of Egypt and the East, they assemble under each father. Then the body is refreshed, so far as suffices for safety and health, every one curbing his concupiscence, so as not to be profuse and the scanty and very mean diet which is provided. Thus they not only abstain from flesh and wine for the purpose of subduing lust, but from those things which provoke the appetite of the stomach and gullet more readily, from seeming to some, as it were, more refined. In this way the desire of exquisite dainties in which there is no flesh is wont to be absurdly and shamefully defended. Any surplus after necessary food and the surplus is very great from the labor of their hands and the frugality of their meals, is carefully distributed to the needy, the more carefully that it was not procured by those who distribute. For they never act with a view of having abundance for themselves, but always act with a view of allowing no superfluity to remain with them. Afterwards, describing their austerity, of which he had himself seen instances, both at Milan and elsewhere, he says, quote, Meanwhile, no one is urged to austerities which he is unable to bear, no one is obliged to do what he declines, nor condemned by the others, whom he acknowledges himself too weak to imitate. For they remember how greatly charity is commended. They remember that to the pure all things are pure. Titus 1, verse 15. 
Wherefore, all their vigilance is employed, not in rejecting kinds of food as polluted, but in subduing concupiscence and maintaining brotherly love. They remember, inner quote, meats for the belly, and the belly for meats, close inner quote, etc. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 13. Many, however, strong abstain because of the weak, and many this is not the cause of action. They take pleasure in sustaining themselves on the meanest and least expensive food. Hence the very persons who in health restrain themselves decline not in sickness to use what their health requires. Many do not drink wine, and yet do not think themselves polluted by it, for they most humanely cause it to be given to the more sickly and to those whose health requires it. And some who foolishly refuse they fraternally admonish, lest by vain superstition they sooner become more weak than more holy. Thus they sedulously practice piety, while they know that bodily exercise is only for a short time. Charity especially is observed. Their food is adapted to charity, their speech to charity, their dress to charity, their looks to charity. They go together and breathe only charity. They deem it as unlawful to offend charity as to offend God. If anyone opposes it, he is cast out and shunned. If anyone offends it, he is not permitted to remain one day." Unquote. Since this holy man appears in these words to have exhibited the monastic life of ancient times as in a picture, I have thought it right to insert them here, though somewhat long, because I perceive that I would be considerably longer if I collected them from different writers, however compendious I might study to be. Section 10. Here, however, I had no intention to discuss the whole subject. I only wish to show, by the way, what kinds of monks the early church had and what the monastic profession then was, that from the contrast, sound readers might judge how great the effrontery is of those who allege antiquity in support of present monkism. Augustine, while tracing out a holy and legitimate monasticism, would keep away all rigorous exaction of those things which the word of the Lord has left free. But in the present day, nothing is more rigorously exacted, for they deem it an inexpiable crime if anyone deviates in the least degree from the prescribed form and color or species of dress and the kind of food, or in other frivolous and frigid ceremonies. Augustine strenuously contends that it is not lawful for monks to live in idleness on other men's means. He denies that any such example was to be found in his day in a well-regulated monastery. Our monks place the principal part of their holiness in idleness. For if you take away their idleness, where will that contemplative life by which they glory that they excel all others and make a near approach to the angels? Augustine, in fine, requires a monasticism which may be nothing else than a training and assistant to the offices of piety which are recommended to all Christians. What, when he makes charity its chief and almost its only rule, do we think he praises that combination by which a few men, bound to each other, are separated from the whole body of the church? Nay, he wishes them to set an example to others of preserving the unity of the church. So different is the nature of present monarchism in both respects that it would be difficult to find anything so dissimilar not to say contrary. For our monks, not satisfied with that piety, on the study of which alone Christ enjoins his followers to be intent, imagine some new kind of piety by aspiring to which they are more perfect than all other men. Section 11. If they deny this, I should like to know why they honor their own order only with the title of perfection and deny it to all other divine callings. I am not unaware of the sophistical solution that their order is not so called because it contains perfection in itself, but because it is the best of all for acquiring perfection. When they would extol themselves to the people, when they would lay a snare for rash and ignorant youth, 
When they would assert their privileges and exalt their own dignity to the disparagement of others, they boast that they are in a state of perfection. When they are too closely pressed to be able to defend this vain arrogance, they betake themselves to the subterfuge that they have not yet obtained perfection, but that they are in a state in which they aspire to it more than others. Meanwhile, the people continue to admire as if the monastic life alone were angelic, perfect, and purified from every vice. Under this pretense, they ply a most gainful traffic, while their moderation lies buried in a few volumes. Who sees not that this is intolerable trifling? But let us treat with them as if they ascribed nothing more to their profession than to call it a state for acquiring perfection. Surely by giving it this name they distinguish it by a special mark from other modes of life. And who will allow such honor to be transferred to an institution of which not one syllable is said in approbation, while all other callings of God are deemed unworthy of the same, though not only commanded by his sacred lips, but adorned with distinguished titles? And how great the insult offered to God when some device of man is preferred to all the modes of life which he has ordered, and by his testimony approved. Section 12. But let them say I calumniated them when I declared that they were not contented with the rule prescribed by God. Still, though I were silent, they more than sufficiently accuse themselves, for they plainly declare that they undertake a greater burden than Christ has imposed on his followers, since they promise that they will keep evangelical counsels regarding the love of enemies, the suppression of vindictive feelings, and abstinence from swearing, counsels to which Christians are not commonly restricted. In this, what antiquity can they pretend? None of the ancients ever thought of such a thing. All with one voice proclaimed that not one syllable proceeded from Christ, which it is not necessary to obey. And the very things which these worthy expounders pretend that Christ only counseled, they uniformly declare without any doubt that he expressly enjoined. But as we have shown above, that this is a most pestilential error, that it suffice here to have briefly observed that monasticism as it now exists, founded on an idea which all pious men ought to execrate, namely the pretense that there is some more perfect rule of life than that common rule which God has delivered to the whole church. Whatever is built on this foundation cannot but be abominable. Section 13. But they produce another argument for their perfection and deem it invincible. Our Lord said to the young man who put a question to him concerning the perfection of righteousness, quote, If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell that thou hast and give to the poor, unquote. Matthew 19, verse 21. Whether they do so, I do not now dispute. Let us grant for the present that they do. They boast, then, that they have become perfect by abandoning their all. If the sum of perfection consists in this, what is the meaning of Paul's doctrine, that though a man should give all his goods to feed the poor and have not charity, he is nothing? 1 Corinthians 13, verse 3. What kind of perfection is that, which, if charity be wanting, is, with the individual himself, reduced to nothing? Here they must of necessity answer that it is indeed the highest, but is not the only work of perfection. But here again Paul interposes, and hesitates not to declare that charity without any renunciation of that sort is the, quote, bond of perfectness, unquote, Colossians 3, verse 14. If it is certain that there is no disagreement between the scholar and the master, and the latter clearly denies that the perfection of a man consists in renouncing all his goods, and on the other hand asserts that perfection may exist without it, we must see in what sense we should understand the words of Christ. Quote, if thou wilt be perfect, go and sell that thou hast. Unquote. Now there will not be the least obscurity in the meaning if we consider, this ought to be attended to in all our Savior's discourses, to whom the words are addressed. 
Luke 10, verse 25. A young man asks, By what works he shall enter into eternal life? Christ, as he was asked concerning works, refers him to the law, and justly. For considered in itself, it is the way of eternal life, and its inefficacy to give eternal life is owing to our depravity. By this answer, Christ declared that he did not deliver any other rule of life than that which had formerly been delivered in the law of the Lord. Thus, he both bore testimony to the divine law, that it was a doctrine of perfect righteousness, and at the same time met the calumnious charge of seeming, by some new rule of life, to incite the people to revolt from the law. The young man, who was not ill-disposed, but was puffed up with vain confidence, answers that he had observed all the precepts of the law from his youth. It is absolutely certain that he was immeasurably distant from the goal which he boasted of having reached. Had his boast been true, he would have wanted nothing of absolute perfection, for it has been demonstrated above that the law contains in it a perfect righteousness. This is even obvious from the fact that the observance of it is called the way to eternal life. To show him how little progress he had made in that righteousness which he too boldly answered that he had fulfilled, it was right to bring before him his besetting sin. Now, while he abounded in riches, he had his heart set upon them. Therefore, because he did not feel this secret wound, it is probed by Christ. Quote, go, unquote, says he, quote, and sell that thou hast, unquote. Had he been as good a keeper of the law as he supposed, he would not have gone away sorrowful on hearing these words. For he who loves God with his whole heart not only regards everything which wars with his love as dross, but hates it as destruction. Philippians 3, verse 8. Therefore, when Christ orders a rich miser to leave all that he has, it is the same as if he had ordered the ambitious to renounce all his honors, the voluptuous all his luxuries, the unchaste all the instruments of his lust. Thus, consciences which are not reached by any general admonition are to be recalled to a particular feeling of their particular sin. In vain, therefore, did they rest that special case to a general interpretation, as if Christ had decided that the perfection of man consists in the abandonment of his goods, since he intended nothing more by the expression than to bring a youth who was out of measure satisfied with himself to feel his sore, and so understand that he was still at a great distance from that perfect obedience of the law which he falsely ascribed to himself. I admit that this passage was ill understood by some of the fathers, and hence arose an affectation of voluntary poverty, those only being thought blessed to abandon all earthly goods, and in a state of destitution devoted themselves to Christ. But I am confident that, after my exposition, no good and reasonable man will have any dubiety here as to the mind of Christ. Section 14. Still, there was nothing with the fathers less intended than to establish that kind of perfection which was afterwards fabricated by cowled monks in order to rear up a species of double Christianity. For as yet the sacrilegious dogma was not broached which compares the profession of monasticism to baptism, nay, plainly asserts that it is a form of a second baptism who can doubt that the fathers with their whole hearts abhorred such blasphemy. And what need is there to demonstrate by words that the last quality which Augusta mentions as belonging to the ancient monks, these, that they in all things accommodated themselves to charity, is most alien from this new profession, saying itself declares that all who retire into monasteries withdraw from the church. For how? Do they not separate themselves from the legitimate society of the faithful by acquiring for themselves a special ministry and private administration of the sacraments? What is meant by destroying the communion of the church if this is not? And to follow out the comparison with which I began, and at once close the point, what resemblance have they in this respect to the ancient monks? 
these, though they dwelt separately from others, had not a separate church. They partook of the sacraments with others. They attended public meetings, and were then a part of the people. But what have those men done in erecting a private altar for themselves, but broken the bond of unity? For they have excommunicated themselves from the whole body of the church, and contemned the ordinary ministry by which the Lord has been pleased that peace and charity should be preserved among his followers. Wherefore I hold that as many monasteries as there are in the present day, so many conventicles are there of schismatics who have disturbed ecclesiastical order and been cut off from the legitimate society of the faithful, that there might be no doubt as to their separation, they have given themselves the various names of factions. They have not been ashamed to glory in that which Paul so execrates, that he is unable to express his detestation too strongly, unless indeed we suppose that Christ was not divided by the Corinthians, when one teacher set himself above another. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 12 and 13, and 3, verse 4. And that now no injury is done to Christ, when instead of Christians we hear some called Benedictines, other Franciscans, others Dominicans, and so-called, that while they affect to be distinguished from the common body of Christians, they proudly substitute these names for a religious profession. Section 15. The differences which I have hitherto pointed out between the ancient monks and those of our age are not in manners, but in profession. Hence, let my readers remember that I have spoken of monachism rather than of monks, and marked not the vices which cleave to a few, but vices which are inseparable from the very mode of life. In regard to manners, of what use is it to particularize and show how great the difference? This much is certain, that there is no order of men more polluted by all kinds of vicious turpitude. Nowhere do faction, hatred, party spirit, and intrigue more prevail. In a few monasteries, indeed, they live chastely. If we are to call it chastity, or lust is so far repressed as not to be openly infamous, still you will scarcely find one in ten which is not rather a brothel than a sacred abode of chastity. But how frugally they live, just like swine wallowing in their sties. But lest they complain that I deal too unmercifully with them, I go no farther. Although anyone who knows the case will admit that in the few things which I have said, I have not spoken in the spirit of an accuser. Augustine, though he testifies that the monks excelled so much in chastity, yet complains that there were many vagabonds who, by wicked arts and impostures, extracted money from the more simple, flying a shameful traffic by carrying about the relics of martyrs and vending any dead man's bones for relics, bringing ignominy on their order by many similar iniquities as he declares that he had seen none better than those who had profited in monasteries. So he laments that he had seen none worse than those who had backslidden in monasteries. What would he say were he in the present day to see how almost all monasteries overflowing and in a manner bursting with numerous deplorable vices? I say nothing but what is notorious to all, and yet this charge does not apply to all without a single exception. For as the rule and discipline of holy living was never so well framed in monasteries as that there were not always some drones very unlike the others, so I hold that in the present day monks have not so completely degenerated from that holy antiquity as not to have some good men among them. But these few lie scattered up and down among a huge multitude of wicked and dishonest men, and are not only despised, but even petulantly assailed, sometimes even treated cruelly by the others, who, according to the Milesian proverb, think they ought to have no good man among them. Section 16. By this contrast between ancient and modern monasticism, I trust I have gained my object, which was to show that our cowled monks falsely pretend the example of the primitive church in defense of our profession. 
since they differ no less from the monks of that period than apes do from men. Meanwhile, I disguise not that even in that ancient form which Augustine commends, there was something which little pleases me. I admit that they were not superstitious in the external exercises of a more rigorous discipline, but I say that they were not without a degree of affectation and a false zeal. It was a fine thing to cast away their substance, and free themselves from all worldly cares. But God sets more value on the pious management of a household than the head of it, discarding all avarice, ambition, and other lusts of the flesh, makes it his purpose to serve God in some particular vocation. It is fine to philosophize in seclusion, far away from the intercourse of society. Benedil accords with Christian meekness for anyone, as if in hatred of the human race, to fly to the wilderness and to solitude, and at the same time desert the duties which the Lord had especially commanded. Were we to grant that there was nothing more in that profession, there is certainly no small evil in its having introduced a useless and perilous example into the church. Section 17 Now then, let us see the nature of the vows by which the monks of the present day are initiated into this famous order. First, as their intention is to institute a new and fictitious worship with a view to gain favor with God, I conclude from what has been said above that everything which they vow is abomination to God. Secondly, I hold that as they frame their own mode of life to pleasure without any regard to the calling of God or to his approbation, the attempt is rash and unlawful, because their conscience has no ground on which it can support itself before God, and, quote, whatsoever is not of faith is sin, unquote, Romans 14, verse 23. Moreover, I maintain that in restricting themselves to many perverse and impious modes of worship, such as are exhibited in modern monasticism, they consecrate themselves not to God, but to the devil. Or why should the prophets have been permitted to say that the Israelites sacrificed their sons to devils and not to God? Deuteronomy 32, verse 17, and Psalm 106, verse 37, merely because they had corrupted the true worship of God by profane ceremonies. And we not to be permitted to say the same thing of monks who, along with a cow, cover themselves with the net of a thousand impious superstitions. Then, what is their species of vows? They offer God a promise of perpetual virginity, as if they had previously made a compact with him to free them from the necessity of marriage. They cannot allege that they make this vow trusting entirely to the grace of God, for seeing he declares this to be a special gift, not given to all. Matthew 19, verse 11, No man has a right to assume that the gift will be his. Let those who have it use it, and if at any time they feel the infirmity of the flesh, let them have recourse to the aid of him by whose power alone they can resist. If this avails not, let them not despise the remedy which is offered to them. If the faculty of continence is denied, the voice of God distinctly calls upon them to marry. By continence I mean not merely that by which the body is kept pure from fornication, but that by which the mind keeps its chastity untainted. For Paul enjoins caution not only against external lasciviousness, but also burning of mind. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 9. It has been the practice, they say, from the remotest period for those who wish to devote themselves entirely to God to bind themselves by a vow of continence. I confess that the custom is ancient, but I do not admit that the age when it commenced was so free from every defect that all that was then done is to be regarded as a rule. Moreover, the inexorable rigor of holding that after the vow is conceived there is no room for repentance crept in gradually. This is clear from Cyprian. Quote, if versions have dedicated themselves to Christian faith, let them live modestly and chastely without pretense. Thus strong and stable, let them wait for the reward of virginity. 
But if they will not or cannot persevere, it is better to marry than by their falls to fall into the fire. Unquote. In the present day, with what invectives would they not lacerate anyone who should seek to temper the vow of continence by such an equitable course? Those, therefore, have wandered far from the ancient custom who not only use no moderation and grant no pardon when anyone proves unequal to the performance of his vow, but shamelessly declare that it is a more heinous sin to cure the intemperance of the flesh by marriage than to defile body and soul by whoredom. Section 18. But they still insist and attempt to show that this vow was used in the days of the apostles, because Paul says that widows who marry after having once undertaken a public office, quote, cast off their first faith, unquote. 1 Timothy 5, verse 12. I by no means deny that widows who dedicated themselves and their labors to the church at the same time came under an obligation of perpetual celibacy, not because they regarded it in the light of a religious duty, as afterwards began to be the case, but because they could not perform their functions unless they had their time at their own command and were free from the nuptial tie. But if, after giving their pledge, they began to look to a new marriage, what else was this but to shake off the calling of God? It is not strange, therefore, when Paul says that by such desires they were wanton against Christ. In further explanation, he afterwards adds that by not performing their promises to the church, they violate and nullify their first faith given in baptism. One of the things contained in this first faith being that everyone should correspond to his calling. Unless you choose rather to interpret that, having lost their modesty, they afterwards cast off all care of decency, prostituting themselves to all kinds of lasciviousness and pertness, leading licentious and dissolute lives, than which nothing can less become Christian women. I am much pleased with this exposition. Our answer then is, that those widows who were admitted to a public ministry came under an obligation of perpetual celibacy, and hence we easily understand how, when they married, they threw off all modesty and became more insolent than became Christian women, that in this way they not only sinned by violating the faith given to the church, but revolted from the common rule of pious women. First, I deny that they had any other reason for professing celibacy than just because marriage was altogether inconsistent with the function which they undertook. Hence, they bound themselves to celibacy only insofar as the nature of their function required. Secondly, I do not admit that they were bound to celibacy in such sense that it was not better for them to marry than to suffer by the incitements of the flesh and fall into uncleanness. Thirdly, I hold that what Paul enjoined was in the common case free from danger because he orders the selection to be made from those who, contented with one marriage, had already given proof of continence. Our only reason for disapproving of the vow of celibacy is because it is improperly regarded as an act of worship and is rashly undertaken by persons who have not the power of keeping it. Section 19. But what ground can there be for applying this passage to nuns? For deaconesses were appointed not to soothe God by chantings or unintelligible murmurs and spend the rest of their time in idleness, but to perform the public ministry of the church toward the poor, and to labor with all zeal, assiduity, and diligence in the offices of charity. They did not vow celibacy, that they might thereafter exhibit abstinence from marriage as a kind of worship rendered to God, but only that they might be freer from encumbrance in executing their office. In fine, they did not vow on attaining adolescence or in the bloom of life, and so afterwards learned by too late experience over what a precipice they had plunged themselves, but after they were thought to have surmounted all danger, they took a vow not less safe than holy. But not to press the two former points, I say that it was unlawful to allow women to take a vow of continence before their sixtieth year, since the apostle admits such only and enjoins the younger to marry and beget children. 
Therefore, it is impossible on any ground to excuse the deduction, first of 12, then of 20, and lastly of 30 years. Still less possible is it to tolerate the case of miserable girls who, before they have reached an age at which they can know themselves or have any experience of their character, are not only induced by fraud but compelled by force and threats to entangle themselves in these accursed snares. I will not enter at length into a refutation of the other two vows. This only I say, that besides involving, as matters stand in the present day, not a few superstitions, they seem to be purposely framed in such a manner as to make those who take them mock God and men. But lest we should seem with too malignant feeling to attack every particular point, we will be contented with the general refutation which has been given above. Section 20. The nature of the vows which are legitimate and acceptable to God, I think I have sufficiently explained. Yet, because some ill-informed and timid consciences, even when a vow displeases and is condemned, nevertheless hesitate as to the obligation and are grievously tormented, shuddering at the thought of violating a pledge given to God, and, on the other hand, fearing to sin more by keeping it, we must here come to their aid, and enable them to escape from this difficulty. And to take away all scruple at once, I say that all vows not legitimate and not duly conceived, as they are of no account with God, should be regarded by us as null. For if in human contracts those promises only are binding in which he with whom we contract wishes to have us bound, it is absurd to say that we are bound to perform things which God does not at all require of us, especially since our works can only be right when they please God and have the testimony of our consciences that they do please him. For it always remains fixed that, quote, whatsoever is not of faith is sin, unquote. Romans 14, verse 23. By this, Paul means that any work undertaken in doubt is vicious, because at the root of all good works lies faith, which assures us that they are acceptable to God. Therefore, if Christian men may not attempt anything without this assurance, why, if they have undertaken anything rashly through ignorance, may they not afterwards be freed and desist from their error? Since vows rationally undertaken are of this description, they not only oblige not, but must necessarily be rescinded. What then, when they are not only of no estimation in the sight of God, but are even an abomination, as has already been demonstrated? It is needless farther to discuss a point which does not require it. To appease pious consciences and free them from all doubt, this one argument seems to me sufficient, viz., that all works whatsoever which flow not from a pure fountain and are not directed to a proper end are repudiated by God, and so repudiated that he no less forbids us to continue than to begin them. Hence it follows that vows dictated by error and superstition are of no weight with God and ought to be abandoned by us. Section 21. He who understands this solution is furnished with the means of repelling the calumnies of the wicked against those who withdraw from monasticism to some honest kind of livelihood. They are grievously charged with having perjured themselves and broken their faith because they have broken the bond, vulgarly supposed to be indissoluble, by which they had bound themselves to God and the church. But I say, first, there is no bond when that which man confirms God abrogates, and secondly, even granting that they were bound when they remained entangled in ignorance and error, now, since they had been enlightened by the knowledge of the truth, I hold that they are at the same time free by the grace of Christ. For if such is the efficacy of the cross of Christ, that it frees us from the curse of the divine law by which we were held bound, how much more must it rescue us from extraneous chains, which are nothing but the wily nets of Satan? There can be no doubt, therefore, that all on whom Christ shines with the light of his gospel, he frees from all the snares in which they had entangled themselves through superstition. At the same time, they have another defense if they were unfit for celibacy. 
For if an impossible vow is certain destruction to the soul, which God wills to be saved and not destroyed, it follows that it ought by no means to be adhered to. Now, how impossible the vow of continence is to those who have not received it by special gift, we have shown. And experience, even were I silent, declares, while the great obscenity with which almost all monasteries teem is a thing not unknown. If any seem more decent and modest than others, they are not, however, chaste. The sin of unchastity urges and lurks within. Thus it is that God, by fearful examples, punishes the audacity of men, when, unmindful of their infirmity, they against nature affect that which has been denied to them, and despising the remedies which the Lord has placed in their hands, are confident in their ability to overcome the disease of incontinence by contumacious obstinacy. For what other name can we give it when a man admonished of his need of marriage and of the remedy with which the Lord has thereby furnished, not only despises it, but binds himself by an oath to despise it? Chapter 14 of the Sacraments There are 26 sections Section 1 Akin to the preaching of the gospel we have another help to our faith in the sacraments in regard to which it greatly concerns us that some sure doctrine should be delivered informing us both of the end for which they were instituted and of their present use First, we must attend to what a sacrament is It seems to me then a simple and appropriate definition to say that it is an external sign by which the Lord seals on our consciences his promises of goodwill toward us in order to sustain the weakness of our faith and we in our turn testify our piety towards him both before himself and before angels as well as men. We may also define more briefly by calling it a testimony of the divine favor toward us confirmed by an external sign with a corresponding attestation of our faith towards him. You may make your choice of these definitions, which in meaning differ not from that of Augustine, which defines a sacrament to be a visible sign of a sacred thing, or a visible form of an invisible grace, but does not contain a better, or surer, explanation. As its brevity makes it somewhat obscure, and thereby misleads the more illiterate, I wish to remove all doubt, and make the definition fuller by stating it at greater length. Section 2. The reason why the ancients used the term in this sense is not obscure. The old interpreter, whenever you wish to render the Greek term, mu, upsilon, sigma, tau, eta, rho, iota, omicron, nu, mysterion, into Latin, especially when it was used with reference to divine things, used the word sacramentum. Thus, in Ephesians, quote, having made known unto us the mystery, sacramentum, of his will, unquote, and again, Quote, if ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you words, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery. Unquote. Sacramentum. Ephesians 1, verse 9, and 3, verse 2. In Colossians, Quote, even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but is now made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery. Unquote. Sacramentum. Colossians 1, verse 26. Also, in the first epistle to Timothy, quote, Without controversy, great is the mystery, sacramentum, of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, unquote. 1 Timothy 3, verse 16. He was unwilling to use the word, arcanum, secret, lest the word should seem beneath the magnitude of the thing meant. When the thing, therefore, was sacred and secret, he used the term, sacramentum. In this sense, it frequently occurs in ecclesiastical writers. And it is well known that what the Latins call sacramenta, the Greeks call, Greek word, mu, epsilon, 
Sigma, Tau, Eta, Rho, Iota, Alpha, Hysteria, are mysteries. The sameness of meaning removes all dispute. Hence it is that the term was applied to those signs which gave an august representation of things spiritual and sublime. This is also observed by Augustine. Quote, it were tedious to discourse of the variety of signs. Those which relate to divine things are called sacraments. Unquote. Section 3. From the definition which we have given, we perceive that there never is a sacrament without an antecedent promise, the sacrament being added as a kind of appendix with the view of confirming and sealing the promise and giving a better attestation, or rather, in a manner, confirming it. In this way, God provides first for our ignorance and sluggishness, and secondly, for our infirmity. And yet, properly speaking, it does not so much confirm his word as establish us in the faith of it. For the truth of God is in itself sufficiently stable and certain, and cannot receive a better confirmation from any other quarter than from itself. But as our faith is slender and weak, so if it be not propped up on every side and supported by all kinds of means, it is forthwith shaken and tossed to and fro, wavers, and even falls. And here indeed our merciful Lord, with boundless condescension, so accommodates himself to our capacity that seeing how from our animal nature we are always creeping on the ground and cleaving to the flesh, having no thought of what is spiritual and not even forming an idea of it, he declines not by means of these earthly elements to lead us to himself, and even in the flesh to exhibit a mirror of spiritual blessings. For, as Chrysostom says, quote, were we incorporeal, he could give us these things in a naked and incorporeal form. Now, because our souls are implanted in bodies, he delivers spiritual things under things visible, not that the qualities which are set before us in the sacraments are inherent in the nature of the things, but God gives them this signification, unquote. Section 4. This is commonly expressed by saying that a sacrament consists of the word and the external sign. By the word we ought to understand not one which muttered without meaning and without faith, by its sound merely as by a magical incantation, has the effect of consecrating the element, but one which, preached, makes us understand what the visible sign means. The thing, therefore, which was frequently done under the tyranny of the Pope, was not free from the great propination of the mystery, for they deemed it sufficient if the priest muttered the formula of consecration, while the people, without understanding, looked stupidly on. Nay, this was done for the express purpose of preventing any instruction from thereby reaching the people, for all was said in Latin to illiterate hearers, superstition afterwards was carried to such a height that the consecration was thought not to be duly performed except in a low grumble which few could hear very different is the doctrine of Augustine concerning the sacramental word quote let the word be added to the element and it will become a sacrament for whence can there be so much virtue in water as to touch the body and cleanse the heart and thus by the agency of the word and this not because it is said but because it is believed for even in the word the transient sound is one thing the permanent power, another. This is the word of faith which we preach, says the Apostle. Romans 10, verse 8. Hence, in the Acts of the Apostles, we have the expression, quote, purify their hearts by faith, unquote. Acts 15, verse 9. And the Apostle Peter says, quote, the like figure whereunto even baptism doth now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience, unquote. 1 Peter 3, verse 21. Quote, this is the word of faith which we preach, by which word doubtless baptism also, in order that it may be able to cleanse, is consecrated. Unquote. You see how he requires preaching to the production of faith. And we need not labor to prove this, 
since there is not the least room for doubt as to what Christ did and commanded us to do, as to what the apostles followed and a purer church observed. Nay, it is known that, from the very beginning of the world, whenever God offered any sign to the holy patriarchs, it was inseparably attached to doctrine without which our senses would gaze bewildered on an unmeaning object. Therefore, when we hear mention made of the sacramental word, let us understand the promise which, proclaimed aloud by the minister, leads the people by the hand to that to which the sign tends and directs us. Section 5. Nor are those to be listened to who oppose this view with a more subtle than solid dilemma. They argue thus. We either know that the word of God which precedes the sacrament is the true will of God, or we do not know it. If we know it, we learn nothing new from the sacrament which succeeds. If we do not know it, we cannot learn it from the sacrament, whose whole efficacy depends on the word. Our brief reply is, the seals which are affixed to diplomas and other public deeds are nothing considered in themselves, and would be affixed to no purpose if nothing was written on the parchment, and yet this does not prevent them from sealing and confirming when they are appended to writings. It cannot be alleged that this comparison is a recent fiction of our own, since Paul himself used it, terming circumcision a seal. Romans 4, verse 11, where he expressly maintains that the circumcision of Abraham was not for justification, but was an attestation to the covenant by the faith of which he had been previously justified. And how, pray, can anyone be greatly offended when we teach that the promise is sealed by the sacrament, since it is plain from the promises themselves that one promise confirms another? The clearer any evidence is, the fitter is it to support our faith. But sacraments bring with them the clearest promises, and when compared with the word, have this peculiarity, that they represent promises to the life, as if painted in a picture. Nor ought we to be moved by an objection founded on the distinction between sacraments and the seals of documents. These, that since both consist of the carnal elements of this world, the former cannot be sufficient or adequate to seal the promises of God, which are spiritual and eternal though the latter may be employed to seal the edicts of princes concerning fleeting and fading things. But the believer, when the sacraments are presented to his eye, does not stop short at the carnal spectacle, but by the steps of analogy which I have indicated, rises with pious consideration to the sublime mysteries which lie hidden in the sacraments. Section 6. As the Lord calls his promises covenants, Genesis 6, verse 18, and 9, verse 9, and 17, verse 2, and sacrament signs of the covenants, so something similar may be inferred from human covenants. What could the slaughter of a hog effect unless words were interposed or rather preceded? Swine are often killed without any interior or occult mystery. What could be gained by pledging the right hand, since hands are not unfrequently joined in giving battle? But when words have preceded, then by such symbols of covenant sanction as given to laws, though previously conceived, digested, and enacted by words, Sacraments, therefore, are exercises which confirm our faith in the word of God, and because we are carnal, they are exhibited under carnal objects, that thus they may train us in accommodation to our sluggish capacity, just as nurses lead children by the hand. And hence Augustine calls a sacrament a visible word, because it represents the promises of God as in a picture and places them in our view in a graphic bodily form. We might refer to other similitudes by which sacraments are more plainly designated, as when they are called the pillars of our faith. 
For just as a building stands and leans on its foundation, and yet is rendered more stable when supported by pillars, so faith leans on the word of God as its proper foundation, and yet when sacraments are added, leans more firmly as if resting on pillars. Or, we may call them mirrors, in which we may contemplate the riches of the grace which God bestows upon us. For then, as has been said, he manifests himself to us in as far as our dullness can enable us to recognize him, and testifies his love and kindness to us more expressly than by word. Section 7. It is irrational to contend that sacraments are not manifestations of divine grace toward us, because they are held forth to the ungodly also, who, however so far from experiencing God to be more propitious to them, only incur greater condemnation. By the same reasoning, the gospel will be no manifestation of the grace of God, because it is spurned by many who hear it. Nor will Christ himself be a manifestation of grace, because of the many by whom he was seen and known, very few received him. Something similar may be seen in public enactments. A great part of the body of the people deride and evade the authenticating seal, though they know it was employed by their sovereign to confirm his will. Others trample it underfoot as a matter by no means appertaining to them, while others even execrate it, so that, seeing the condition of the two things would be alike, the appropriateness of the comparison which I made above ought to be more readily allowed. It is certain, therefore, that the Lord offers us his mercy and a pledge of his grace, both in his sacred word and in the sacraments. But it is not apprehended save by those who receive the word and sacraments with firm faith, in like manner as Christ, though offered and held forth for salvation to all, is not, however, acknowledged and received by all. Augustine, when intending to intimate this, said that the efficacy of the word is produced in the sacrament, not because it is spoken, but because it is believed. Hence, Paul, addressing believers, includes communion with Christ in the sacraments, as when he says, quote, As many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ, unquote, Galatians 3, verse 27. Again, Quote, for by one spirit we are all baptized into one body. Unquote. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. But when he speaks of a preposterous use of the sacraments, he attributes nothing more to them than to frigid, empty figures, thereby intimating that however the ungodly and hypocrites may by their perverseness either suppress or obscure or impede the effect of divine grace in the sacraments, that does not prevent them where and whenever God is so pleased from giving a true evidence of communion with Christ, or prevent them from exhibiting, and the Spirit of God from performing the very thing which they promise. We conclude, therefore, that the sacraments are truly termed evidences of divine grace and, as it were, seals of the good will which he entertains towards us. They, by sealing it to us, sustain, nourish, confirm, and increase our faith. The objections usually urged against this view are frivolous and weak. They say that our faith, if it is good, cannot be made better. For there is no faith save that which leans unshakingly, firmly, and undividedly on the mercy of God. It had been better for the objectors to pray with the apostles. Quote, Lord, increase our faith, unquote, Luke 17, verse 5, than confidently to maintain a perfection of faith which none of the sons of men ever attained, none ever shall attain in this life. Let them explain what kind of faith his was who said, quote, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief, unquote. Mark 9, verse 24. That faith, though only commenced, was good, and might, by the removal of the unbelief, be made better. But there is no better argument to refute them than their own consciousness. 
for if they confess themselves sinners, this, whether they will or not, they cannot deny, then they must of necessity impute this very quality to the imperfection of their faith. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Still Waters Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, are on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, AB, Canada, T6L, 3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list. So once you've sent out your email address, you will be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and text, etc. SWRB makes available on the web, as well as, at times, to our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends, but we only authorize this as long as the full content of the message, including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way, and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading, and remember that Isaiah 26.3 states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you.